Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. What is happening, my friend? Welcome to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, Brad Wilson. Before we jump into today's show, which is all about high-stakes poker, my personal favorite poker TV show of all time, just want to let you know you only have a few hours to sign up to the Bluffing with Initiative Masterclass. It is $50. It's happening at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today. Do not delay when the cart closes. I do not know when I'll be opening it again, but I will not be selling a replay in a store. So if the door closes and you miss out, you just have to wait until the next time to sign up. And I promise the value that you're going to get from the webinar that I've put together will at least 10x your investment. And if you do not believe that it does so, I offer you a 100% money back guarantee and you can keep round two with Berkey and James split suit Sweeney those bonuses you can keep those either way so you have nothing to lose you can get your money back I promise you the law of fragility is going to do wonders for your win rate and with that said today's show features some hands from high stakes poker that are quite frankly iconic, and I can't do them enough justice building them up. We do have three hands for you today, so an extra bonus hand as we cap off our week of Hero Bluff Week. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness, and next week we are back to the regularly scheduled program full of the amazing human beings that inhabit the poker world, and now enjoy the show. Thomas, welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you. I'm excited to see some of these old school hands. Let's jump into hand number one, Mr. Phil Ivey versus Brad Booth. This is one of the more iconic hands. Yesterday, when you talked about Isaac Haxton bluffing Ryan Dot being one of the best bluffs you had ever seen, this was one of the hands that got me going when I saw it. Just brings back a lot of fond, cool memories Let's dive into the action. David Williams opens to 1,800. I'm not sure of the blinds. Once again, High Stakes Poker didn't really post the blinds in its overlay. We can make an assumption that it's somewhere around the 300, 600 realm. David Williams raises it up to 1,800 with a jack of spades, nine of clubs, and the hijack. Brad Booth, three bets to 5,800 with the deuce of spades, four of spades, and the cutoff. Let's start here with these two decisions. Both of these players are getting way out of line. Uh, David Williams a little less so. Brad Booth is maybe clicking buttons a little bit here. Uh, Maybe he's claiming to use a polar three-bet strategy here, but I think he's just clicking buttons, and this is an absolute no-no. I'm trying to think of a justification, but it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's hard with a deuce and a four other than you're just trying to make a statement early on in the show. I don't think that Brad Booth had played too many hands thus far, but maybe he, ha- he has a live read on David Williams. I mean, David Williams doesn't have a very strong hand. He's got a Jack and a nine of different suits, which I think is too weak to be opening from the hijack. 
But either way, we, we can't really know the reasons why Brad Booth chose to three bet a deuce and a four. I hope that it was due to a live read or some sort of tendency in David Williams's game, but we'll never know unless I get Brad Booth on the pod. Phil Ivey sitting in the big blind with about 300 K looks down at two red Kings. So what do you do if you are Phil Ivey facing an open to 1800, a three bet to 5,800 Brad Booth has us covered. Well, it's a very clear four bet spot. I probably wouldn't really have any calls of the three bet, uh, even hands like a queen, like we talked about in a previous episode. So being deep, I want to size up. And I think that probably making it less than 22, 23,000 is too small. So I would be looking to make, put it somewhere in that range. I agree. We're 500 big blinds deep. We need to go big. We're out of position. Phil Ivey, cold fours to 14K on the smallish side here with all of this depth. And with that being said, gives Brad Booth a pretty good price to peel with position in a very deep pot. What do you think about Brad Booth's decision here with a deuce and a four? Funnily enough, I would actually call as well, even <laughs> with a horrendous hand. And the, the reason why is the price you're getting is just too good. Uh, you're getting what, almost three to one here on a, on a call or maybe actually getting three to one on a call. And that means that we're going to need 25% equity versus Phil Ivey's range. And it's really difficult to not have that unless his range is literally just big pairs. If, if he, if he includes ace king or ace queen at all in that range, we're going to have enough equity to continue. And this is something that recreational players often mess up is their pre-flop three bet sizings they will often basically min raise or slightly over min raise and end up pricing the opponent into calling with everything unintentionally yes slightly slightly different scenario though with a cold four and a three bet but you're absolutely right if you're going to size your three bet out of position you want to go on the bigger size side typically because you don't want players flatting and having the ability to have position on you post-flop. You don't want to give them a good price. So you want to size up to at least 4X here with your three bets. In this hand, you hit the nail on the head. I'm calling as well with a deuce and a four, even though it's really not super justified with three betting in the first place. If we get to this point in the hand, you really have to call with deuce four suited with this depth and having position. So Brad Booth calls... And we get a flop of Trey of Diamond, Six of Diamond, Seven of Spades. Ivy leads out 23K into a pot of about 30K. What do you think of this CBAT sizing by Ivy? So I think Ivy just almost always has the best hand here, and he has a pretty large range advantage because I don't expect Brad Booth to three bet pocket threes, pocket sixes, or pocket sevens pre flop. So if Ivy's behind, it's versus a slow-played pocket aces, or it's versus 4-5 suited or 6-7 suited specifically. That's not a lot of combos. There's a lot more pocket nines, pocket tens, pocket jacks, 8-9 suited, et cetera, that we can get value from. 
and I think that Ivy's size is justified. Yeah, I like the sizing as well, and everything that you said is pretty much on point. Brad Booth doesn't have a ton of sets because he doesn't really three-bet those sets that often, so the hands that he does have are straights, and then hands like 6-7, the value hands in his perceived range. And so now, of course, Brad Booth grabs the bricks, sticks them in the middle. He jams it to 300K. Firstly, what do you think about this jam? I am very on board with having very unorthodox, very large overbets. I think that in the pool I play in, I am more likely than probably anyone to overbet the pot by three times or four times even. Uh, I don't know that it's super good here because uh, Ivy's range isn't really capped. I, I wouldn't consider pocket kings or pocket aces to be capped here. I don't see a ton of hands in boost range that have the incentive to just jam all in here rather than playing post-flop in some other manner. So I'm not a fan of it. And I'm also not a fan of using a gutter ball if I'm going to make this play. If I'm if I'm making this play with a draw, it, it's gonna it's gotta have a little bit more equity than deuce four suited. So pretty much this decision hinges on Ivy's decision as to whether or not it is good because he's trying to exploit Ivy by making him fold all the overpairs in his range, right? Like that's the purpose of jamming here. Even with aces, Ivy's in a bit of a bind because when you look at Brad Booth's range, his shoving range here, it should be something like maybe ace four of diamonds, ace five of diamonds, eight, nine of diamonds, maybe like a seven, eight of diamonds, which is a pair and a flush draw. And then some six, seven suiteds, which there are only two combinations of six, seven suiteds. And then there are four combinations of four, five suited. The real question is, is Brad Booth actually ripping when he does flop a straight? Is Brad Booth actually open ripping when he flops top two pair? I think this is really the major question. Once it gets back to Phil Ivey as to whether or not he wants to proceed. So I'll throw the ball back in your court. Do you think Brad Booth plays his value hands this way? What do you think Ivy should do with his two kings facing this massive jam? I don't think that anyone except the occasional recreational player overplaying their hand uh, would jam for value here. Uh, I think it's way more likely to be a draw. It's something that I see all the time when someone has the ace of spades on a three three spade board and they just want to maximize fold equity and they just over bet jam and you pretty much know exactly what they have. Uh, so I, I do think Ivy should be calling here, but I do have the luxury of, of knowing the hands involved. It's just not a very credible line with value. I don't want to be the person that keeps dis- disagreeing with what Ivy does you're right. And the reality is, it's tough. 500 big blinds deep. You can put a lot of pressure on your opponents. And that's exactly what Brad Booth does here. If Ivy's folding kings, he's likely folding pretty much everything that's in his cold four bet range, except for maybe the ace king of diamonds. I think that's a hand that can call with some domination versus Brad Booth's raise. 
but it's just really, really tough playing this deep in cash games. And, you know, Brad Booth makes a great read. He rips it. Ivy does end up making the fold. Pretty sick play by Mr. Booth exploiting the greatest of all time, Phil Ivy here. And now coming up after the break, we're going to have a hand with Mr. Tom Durdwan, Peter Eastgate, and Barry Greenstein. You probably know the hand. It's three ways. Don't miss it. Reliving one of the sickest bluffs I think I've ever seen. Check it out right after the break. How do you measure Berkey today from Berkey five years ago and say like, oh, the things that I'm doing are working? Is there a linear good way to go about that? All you need to know is that the game is progressing year after year. And if your win rate is consistent, then you are progressing with it. Because my win rate was comparable, if not slightly higher, 10 years ago. But my knowledge base is 100x what it was 10 years ago. So I was just operating off of unconscious competence against a bunch of, you know, potatoes who barely knew what they were doing. And I was reaping all the rewards by being the smartest guy in the room. Now that's not enough. That barely gets you in the door. That clip is a small sample of the free bonus that you get when you show up at 3 p.m. today for the Bluffing with Initiative Masterclass. Don't delay. You won't be able to get this exclusive conversation anywhere else. Head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com. Sign up. Grab your bonuses. Win more money playing cards. And support Chasing Poker Greatness. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to High Stakes Poker Week. This hand, we have Tom Dewan versus Peter Eastgate versus Barry Greenstein. Let's dive into the hand. Barry opens a 2,500 preflop from early position with aces. I'm not going to tell you what everybody has because we take a flop eight ways. Yes, Barry Greenstein opened to 2,500 from early position and we take a flop eight ways the flop is deuce of spades deuce of clubs ten of diamonds the relevant hands here are tom duan who has queen 10 suited and peter eastgate who flatted out of the small blind with deuce four offsuit it was a really good time to be alive and playing poker for those of you who weren't in the game in this era barry greenstein Ops to continuation bet here into eight-way action. There's 20K in the pot. He bets half pot. What are your thoughts on his C-bet sizing here and just the decision to C-bet in general eight ways? Well, I wouldn't be doing a lot of C-betting eight ways, but I do think that pocket aces needs to go ahead and start betting. Uh, We're still going to have the best hand a lot of the time. Facing resistance from the field, especially raises, it's going to put us in tricky spots, but we're just going to have to deal with that down the road. I don't think we have another option. Uh, I would be using a small sizing here, and I think that his sizing is probably too large still. Yeah, I think we can go 30 to 40%. And it's important here to state that if you are going to be continuation betting, like aces through jacks here, then you also have to continuation bet your ace through suiteds and your 10's full. Because if you don't, and you're playing deep, opponents who are thinking 
and aggressive can really exploit the fact that they have some deuce X in their range and you do not. And basically put you in some really, really, really bad spots deeper in the decision tree with all of your overpairs. So you, you really want to bet your tens full and your ace deuces here so that you just have those hands in your range. If you structure your range in such a way where you check those and then you're betting your overpairs, you're just setting yourself up for disaster down the road. And with that being said, Tom Dwan opts to go ahead, be the man to raise it up to 37,300 here. Preflop Tom Dwan was the first caller of Barry Greenstein's raise. So he's in fairly early position. He has queen 10, so he has top pair. What are your thoughts on Dwan raising it up to 37K here? So I think it's a really interesting raise. There's a couple things that arise when we do this. The first is that we're going to knock out most of the field, if not all of the field with this raise, uh, with a hand that does need quite a bit of protection. It's possible we do have the best hand at this point in time, Uh, but Barry's range is quite strong. He bet Uh, into eight people. (laughs) We will have the opportunity to bluff on future streets, but I think there is one major flaw, and that's that I wouldn't expect us to have too many deuces when we flat first to act after Barry raises, but Tom Dwan was also a maniac playing a ton of hands, so he probably actually does have them, so... Two of the ace-deuce suited. So so we have two ace-deuce suited here. These are the only deuces that we can really have in our range. And then we have three combinations of tens full. So we have five value combinations here that we're repping. It's pretty a pretty cool raise. And I have to say that Dwan is ready to go to war here against Barry. You have to be when you raise this first bet. You have to know that you're going to get deep deeper in the decision tree very, very often. So you just have to be willing to pull the trigger on future streets. So Tom Dwan, I think, is trying to basically set up a multi-street bluff with his 10 blocker here versus Barry Greenstein's overpairs. And again, if Barry Greenstein always has overpairs here and you have a 10 blocker and you can fold them on the Turner River, you're just printing money over the long term which I have to imagine is Tom Dwan's strategy. He gets a little surprised when the small blind flats the $37,300 raise. Peter Eastgate cold calls it. What are your thoughts here when Eastgate flats the 37K cold out of the small blind? So if if you put yourself in... Uh, Eastgate shoes uh, and you see a bet into eight people and then Tom Dwan raises it up again even if you have a hand like ace 10 or king 10 you can't think that your hand is good and there's no draws available on the board it's just very likely that what most players continuing range here ends up being a deuce or better so I think that Peter Eastgate's range here is incredibly strong yeah, it's like all deuces is what his range is here with the occasional quads, right? Like he just has so many deuces here. It's pretty face up that he has a deuce. With all of this being said, the action's now back on Barry Greenstein, who started all of this mess of a hand. What do you do with aces? You fold. 
you just pitch it in the muck. I think that uh, after Eastgate calls, there's no way you can continue. Uh, and it sucks because it feels like it's very high up in your range. And if you're not calling this, what are you calling? And the answer is pocket tens and ace two suited. It's pretty convenient for Tom Dwan that Barry Greenstein does indeed make the call here heading into the turn because of everything that we've said, Barry Greenstein can still have tens full. It's still a part of his range and he can have the ace deuces. So Eastgate has to worry about the threat of Barry Greenstein moving forward here. And I'm with you. Like he's just got to pitch it in the muck. It's just not good. You can't continue on pretty much any card other than an ace on the turn. Just impossible to navigate on the turn and river. So you're just going to end up folding. So there's, you may as well save the 25K that you're about to throw in, in the pot because you're really just lighting it on fire. With all that said, Greenstein calls. And we head to a turn. There's now 133,000 in the pot. The turn is a seven, so an effective brick. Greenstein and Eastgate both check to Tom Dwan. Now, Tom Dwan bets 104,000. Tell me your thoughts on this bet by Tom. I, I think this is the bet that proved to me that Tom Dwan was the best player in that field by a mile. Uh, he recognizes that Peter Eastgate has a deuce, but being sandwiched between uh, or having to act before Greenstein, he's got to be super concerned about Greenstein's range once, once he also calls the raise. And Dwan thinks that it's likely that Eastgate will make the fold and then Greenstein's hand will actually not be strong enough to call himself and he'll be able to take down the pot. Uh, blocking the tens full is, is very important here, though. If he doesn't block tens full, then I don't think he makes this bet. You know, this is why he makes the bet. It's because he has the ten blocker, and there's only one combination of tens full and one combination of deuces that either player can have. And if he thinks Barry can flat with all of his overpairs, you're right. It, it puts Eastgate just in this massive, massive bind having to act – before Greenstein, who could just be sitting there with tents full, loving life, right? So this is an interesting case. It's a, it's a perfect example of how Tom Dwan is almost manipulating the ranges of his opponents through his bet sizes and decisions, and his opponents are more just reacting and getting run over by a very good, loose, aggressive player. There's really nothing they can do. The only thing they can do is have quads here, and beat Tom Dwan. However, I don't think Tom Dwan puts in a river bet if Eastgate calls once again, because it's just too strong. And Eastgate can very, very well have quads here if he puts in a bet on the river. So I think because of the action thus far, and because we're three ways, I do think this is the last shell that Tom Dwan's going to put in the middle. And if Eastgate is folding his deuces here on the turn, then that would be a pretty good decision because he's only continuing with hands that are better than deuces. And those are the hands that we're not trying to fold out. So overall, really awesome hand by Tom Dwan. He was the hero bluff, hero bluffer of his time. It's too bad that we don't get to see him on TV all the time. Now that he's living somewhere in China doing God only knows what. And because this is the blowout show, we do have a final 
hand that will conclude Hero Bluff Week comes in the form of a very unlikely bluffer bluffing one of the best of all time. The action starts out with one Bill Klein straddling it up to 1600 Phil Galfon decides to open to 3500 from the cutoff with a queen-10 offsuit. What do we think of Galfon's sizing here and his choice of opening hand? I think the opening hand and size are both fine. This is a sizing you'd see if you were playing online quite a bit, and I don't know exactly how, how deep they are here, but everything looks good. They don't really say how deep they are, but they're very, very, very deep. So we'll just say that they have at least 400 big blinds sitting behind them when this hand pops up. So Robert Croak, recreational businessman extraordinaire, defends with ace-jack of clubs coming out of the big blind. Bill Klein also opts to defend from the straddle with a 10-6 of spades. What do we think of first Croak's decision to flat? So I would treat the big blind almost like I would the small blind uh, in a normal uh, formation and opt to pretty much only three bet unless I had a very good reason why I wanted to have a calling range, which would generally be a recreational player in the straddle or big blind. Uh, So I would opt to three bet here rather than call. In Robert Croak's defense, you know, Bill Klein is a recreational player who's in the big blind. And if you do three bet and get called, Basically, now you're playing a bloated pot out of position against Phil Galfond. I mean, this is like a recipe that nightmares are made of. So I do see why he flatted. I do think that three betting is better overall, but I do see the merit in flatting here if you're Robert Croak with an ace jack of clubs. Bill Klein closes the action with a 10 and a 6. Any thoughts on that? I think the price is too good, even multi-way, to, to fold this. Uh in a previous episode, I had talked about how uh, Jack three suited in a spot like this when the price, when it was going like five or six ways, probably wasn't going to make the cut. I think this will make the cut, especially with the small raise size from Galfond. Yeah, we're getting a great price. And this is a hand that can make a straight, right? Like it is a 10 and a six, but we can still make a straight. And we're only three ways. So if we flop 10 high or we flop middle pair on like a six, seven deuce, we do have some playability. We can start check calling on a bunch of flops. Galfon's going to be firing fairly loosely, which is what you want when you defend with these medium strength hands. You want your opponent to start putting bets in with their bluffs post-flop. That's how you get a lot of value when you flop one pair. So I'm down with defending the 10 and the 6. Now we're going to head to a flop with $11,000 in the pot we see a flop of jack of spades, nine of hearts, deuce of spades. Everybody's got a little something. Galfon has an open in his straight draw. Robert Croak has top pair, top kicker. Bill Klein has a 10 high flush draw. Robert Croak opts to lead 5,500. This is decision point number one. How do you feel about this lead? So if he's going to be calling a lot of jack acts, a lot of hands in this 10 and 9 range. I think that having a leading range here is good. Uh, You're going to see Galfon check back a lot of ace-kings, ace-queens sort of hands, and you don't really want the hand to check through if you have like jack-queen 
and allow both players to see a free card. There's a lot of bad turns for you. It seems good to get get value, and with a strong strong top pair, it seems seems good to be leading here. I would also lead some draws. The fact that it's three ways changes things in my mind. And really the operative question that you need to be asking yourself is, can we count on Phil Galfon to be betting here super wide? And the answer is no. We have Bill Klein in the big blind who can defend a super wide range. We can defend a super wide range in the small blind. So there's just not a ton of incentive for Phil Galfon to go out on a limb with hands like like you said ace queen ace king suited aces that just completely brick it's going to be an equity driven bet here from galfond and i don't want to give him the opportunity to check back and then have like a king or a queen pop off on the turn even a spade we don't know the cards that are really bad for us so i think this is really a great lead by robert croak Bill Klein is next to act with his flush draw, and he raises it up to 17,500. What are your thoughts on Bill Klein's raise? I think having a raising range here is good, but there's so many draws available that it's really easy to be very weighted towards bluffs uh, in this spot. I, if you think about it, there's a lot of offsuit gutters Uh, that you can raise. There's a lot of flush draws you can raise. There's a lot of open enders you can raise. So it's really easy to see how that's going to outweigh Jack nine and set combinations. Uh, So I I think raising here is fine, but you just have to be choosy about how many of them you're choosing to raise here. I don't really care about the amount of combinations that we're raising here. For me, it would come down to my opponent leading from the big blind here three ways is this a range that I want to mess with that I want to raise and start putting more money in as we go down deeper in the decision tree. And I think that, you know, if you're trying to realize fold equity, this is not a good spot. (laughs) You're not going to realize a ton of fold equity here on the flop. You're likely to get called by Robert Croak. So if you do choose to raise, then you need to be thinking one or two streets in advance as to how do I realize fold equity on the turn and the river? because that's where a lot of the value and raising comes from. So I don't mind a raise if the plan is to blow Robert Croke off of his Jack X as we go deeper in the decision tree. Typically not a great strategy, putting in a ton of money when recreational player has a hand that's pretty face up and top pair. So I would advise against that. However, in certain circumstances, I think it'd be cool to, to have a pretty wide raising range here where we can realize some fold equity deeper down the line. Some really good candidates in my mind would be like King Queen with the Queen of Spades. So a hand that's got some equity with its overcards and we can rep spades when the spades come in. I think that's a pretty cool candidate to go ahead and start raising here. Either way, Bill Klein raises it up. I think his sizing is fine. Now the action's on Phil Galfond. Again, we're very, very deep. What are you thinking here as Phil Galfon with your open end straight draw? So I, I do want to find a way to continue, but I think that continuing through a raise is ambitious. I don't want to get blown off my equity when one of these two players does have top two pair or a set. 
I, I would be very cautious moving forward on flush turns or flush rivers that hit, completed my straight uh, because I do think that there are going to be some reverse implied odds again there. Uh, but I think there's just, I think we just have to continue through a call here. I, I think our hand's too good to be folding. And sometimes Croak will re-raise and will end up getting blown off the equity anyways. But I think the price is good enough to continue. Yeah, it's a really tricky spot for Galfon, considering the action's still open. And it's really going to come on a read of his opponents and understanding what he thinks their range or their likely ranges are here. And whether or not, A, he can get paid, if he does end up making a straight or B whether he can realize some fold equity on some favorable turns. These are really the two drivers in Phil Galfon's decision. I don't think you can just cold four bet here because too many bad things can happen. Like the small blind or the big blind, just ripping it. I think flatting overall is pretty cool. You're going to have a lot of overpairs in your range. So you do have a fairly strong range here with your queen 10. When you chunk in queen 10 and some nut flush draws, your range is pretty balanced. So I'm on board with Mr. Galfon taking the option to flat here. And now the action is back to Robert Croak with his ace jack. Do we call? Do we raise? Do we fold? What do you do, Thomas? I, I don't think we have much of an option. I think folding is our hands just too good to fold even, even versus this action. And while we'd like to deny and get value from flush draws and straight draws, I, I think this is a spot where we just don't get to. Uh, our hand's not strong enough to go ahead and re-raise. So I would be calling and looking to play turns in rivers and expecting to get put in a disgusting spot at some point in this hand. Yeah, and going all the way back to the decision tree when we opted to lead in the three-way action here, we do need to lead our two pairs in our sets as well as our jack X's so that we're balanced so that we don't always have a capped range whenever Galfond flats and the action is back on us. We want to threaten Galfond with a bet three bet. So just something to keep in mind that we do want to have top two pair and sets in our range and our leading range here. Again, going back to what I said earlier, the determining question for me is, is Phil Goffon likely to bet here? If the answer is no, therefore I'm just going to lead my entire range that I think is going to continue. With all that being said, Robert Croak makes the call and gets a pretty horrible turn for him. The King of clubs Running back, the board is now the king of clubs, jack of spades, nine of hearts, deuce of spades. Phil Galfond levels up to the absolute nuts. Bill Klein turns a gut shot straight draw to go along with his flush draw. Robert Croak checks. I think this is pretty uncontroversial. This is a really bad card for him on the turn. So there's 70,000 in the pot, and now Bill Klein leads out 28,000, so about one third pot size bet. What do you think of Bill Klein's sizing here on the turn? So I like the decision to bet. Uh, the reason why I like the decision to bet is having the 10, it's a little bit less likely our opponents have queen 10 and we do have a ton of equity equity still. I'm trying to decide on the sizing. I think I prefer a slightly larger sizing. I think maybe about half pot. I don't know that we get to be too outrageous with our sizing uh, because of multiple opponents. But I do think that we can bet a little bit larger. 
whatever sizing we choose, we have to make sure that it's congruent with when we have queen 10. Right. So we have to keep that in mind that we want to make our sizing congruent when we turn the nuts. And I don't know if queen 10 sizes way down like this on this board on king jack nine with two spades. I think it's most likely to size up here. So it's a kind of a smallish, smaller sizing. I would rather go 50-60% personally. But what's done is done. Bill Klein bets 28K. Now Phil Galfon raises it to 67K. And, you know, there's about 300K plus left behind. What do you think of this raise sizing by Phil Galfon? So in our last episode, we had a spot uh, with Kevin Rabichow that I wasn't quite certain of what was going on. And here's another one. Uh, the, the very small raise size here feels very unorthodox. Uh, maybe he thinks Klein's range actually isn't that strong, even though it seems like it would be at this point in time and is trying to get thin value from it. But it, it seems very natural to want to raise larger versus two recreational players and just get more value. Uh, and I'd probably still pick a number where a flush draw is going to start getting iffy whether they're going to call or not. But 67000 we're just pricing in flush draws to continue profitably. Yeah, we're giving Bill Klein about 4-1 to one to call if he does have a draw. What I think is most likely is because of the depth, maybe Galfond realizes Bill Klein has a super strong range, thinks he has something along the lines of like two pair or a set, and is trying to induce Klein to bet rip it here on the turn, just overplay his setter as two pair. I'm not exactly sure. It's his very, very small sizing by Phil Galfond, which makes me believe that he just doesn't think that Klein has many flush draws in his range here. That's how I'm operating from Galfon's perspective. It's very possible, especially after watching Klein play. I He just doesn't strike me as the, the type that's going to have a lot of huge bluffs, and he could very well be weighted towards sets. So with all of that said, and getting in Galfon's head there on the turn, we get what is a really bad river card for how Galfon is viewing this hand. We get a Jack. So the final board is King, Jack, Jack, nine, deuce. And a Jack promotes all of Bill Klein's likely holdings from Phil Galfon's perspective to full houses. Klein leads 150K into 198K what are your thoughts on this lead from Klein? I I am very, very happy he found the lead. It's it's a difficult thing to do, but he has a lot of full houses here, uh, probably more than Galfon does. Uh, so it seems very clear that you need to start shoveling more money into the pot. 10-6 suited has the benefit of somehow folding out ace-high Ace high flush draws that may have just given up and, and beaten you, and even straights aren't going to be particularly happy versus this bet. So I, I think you generate a ton of fold equity, and I absolutely love the lead. I love this lead by Bill Klein. It is fucking awesome. 
Galphon has 16 combos of queen 10 here. The real question, if you are Bill Klein, is does Galphon raise here with top set on the turn? Does he make this small raise with a hand like a set of kings or king jack? and reopen the action on the turn? Or is his range comprised pretty much entirely of queen 10? And if you think that his range is comprised pretty much entirely of queen 10, and he doesn't really have king's fuller that often, is he opening the action once again on the turn? Because the problem with opening the action on the turn, if you have top set, is that if Klein goes nuts you're really at a horrible, horrible decision here as to whether or not Klein is getting it in with like, you know, top two pair or bottom set. And you, you want to know also whether uh, Bill Klein's aware of his image here. Uh, this leads probably even better than normal just because I, I think his image is a little bit weak tight uh, in situations like this and to be firing a bluff, uh, nearly pot sized bluff on the river in this pot looks insanely strong. And even if I had pocket deuces or pocket nines and Galphon shoes, I would not be happy at, at all about the spot. Yes. I would be very, very, very sad with the Jack pairing because Bill Klein, his most likely hands are something like King Jack. Like, especially once he leads here on the river, I think it's just really awesome the way that Bill Klein constructed his range on the turn. He calls with his gut shot and his flush draw. I don't know. You know, you can never tell in these spots whether the actual plan was to fire out when the board pairs or if the board paired and he's like, oh, sweet, I can, I get to rep this now. But either way, he found the bluff. He got there in the end and my hat's off to him because it's really creative and it's a great play that you almost never see made no matter what level of poker player you're watching. And with that, we are going to close out Hero Bluff Week here on the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Give me your thoughts and opinions on the way that these shows went down. And if you love them, me and Thomas will be sure to make more episodes just like this. Take care, and I'll see you next time.